The following audio is from The Springs Church. More information about The Springs Church is available at thesprings.cc. Well, good morning, Springs Church. Good morning and welcome in the name of Jesus Christ this morning. Welcome everybody who's here in the room. Welcome everybody who's tuning in online. And of course, we always want to say a very warm welcome to our visitors. Thank you so much for joining us this morning. And if we haven't had the chance to connect with you yet, I hope you'll give us that opportunity after service. Give us a chance to get to know you a little bit better. We're really, really grateful that you've chosen to be here and to worship with us this morning. This is a church being transformed into the image of Christ so that anyone can find the way to God. And so we're glad you're here at the Springs. And we're starting a new sermon series this morning. I'm excited for us to spend five weeks in a series called The Gospel According to Moses, Good News and the Torah. So we're going to be spending these five weeks in each of the five books of Moses, the first five books of the Bible, Genesis through Deuteronomy, asking where is the good news, where is the gospel of God in the Pentateuch, in the Torah, and especially this morning beginning in the book of Genesis, chapter 18, verses 1 through 15. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre, as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. When he saw them, he ran from the tent entrance to meet them and bowed down to the ground. He said, my Lord, if I find favor with you, do not pass by your servant. Let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. Let me bring a little bread that you may refresh yourselves and after that you may pass on since you have come to your servant. So they said, do as you have said. And Abraham hastened into the tent to Sarah and said, make ready quickly three measures of choice flour, knead it and make cakes. Abraham ran to the herd and took a calf tender and good and gave it to the servant who hastened to prepare it. Then he took curds and milk and the calf that he had prepared and set it before them, and he stood by them under the tree while they ate. They said to him, where is your wife Sarah? And he said, there, in the tent. Then one said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I be fruitful? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season, and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. He said, yes, you did laugh. Let's pray. God, once again, we give thanks for this text. We thank you for your word and we thank you for the chance to be changed by your word, to be transformed further and further into your image. 
God, we ask that your Holy Spirit would open up our hearts to hear these words and change us in ways that sanctify us and send us out into the world to live as your image bearers. God, I ask for the gift of preaching. And it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. The sequel to Alice in Wonderland is Lewis Carroll's Through the Looking Glass. Maybe you've seen the movie or read the book, but there's a scene, a kind of famous scene that happens in Through the Looking Glass that occurs between the White Queen and Alice. And the White Queen has just asked Alice to believe something incredible, something unbelievable, impossible. And the dialogue that ensues goes like this. I can't believe that, said Alice. Can't you? The queen said in a pitying tone. Try again. Draw a long breath and shut your eyes. Alice laughed. There's no use trying, she said. One can't believe impossible things. I dare say you haven't had much practice, said the queen. When I was your age, I always did it for half an hour a day. Why, sometimes I've believed as many as six impossible things before breakfast. Alice laughed. We're beginning a study this morning, the gospel according to Moses. And we believe that the story of God's good news really does begin all the way back in Genesis. And in fact, that story, as some from outside see it though, is quite hard to believe. That story from a certain angle, even for us, is quite funny at times. Right? As one Bible scholar puts it about the Bible, he says the central storyline starts with God choosing an elderly childless couple in what is now Iraq and declaring to them that God would use them and their descendants to bring blessing to the rest of the world. What a funny idea. What an idea that seems laughable to some, seems impossible. But I think as we look closer at Genesis 18 this morning, we'll find that the laughter is not merely outside the story, but it's actually coming from within. That the closer we look at Genesis 18, the more we see that the laughable nature of life with God is actually woven into the story itself. So let's jump back into that story in Genesis 18, beginning again in verses 1 and 2. The Lord appeared to Abraham by the oaks of Mamre as he sat at the entrance of his tent in the heat of the day. He looked up and saw three men standing near him. There's a beautiful 15th century icon of this scene that maybe you've seen before. It's painted by Andrei Rublev, and it's called the Trinity, or also called the Hospitality of Abraham. And I really wish we had time this morning to talk about some of the Trinitarian sense that we can sense in the text here. That there are these kind of ambiguities in the language that sometimes the narrator talks about the three men, sometimes he talks about one. Abraham addresses them both in the plural and in the singular. Wonderful stuff. I wish we had time, but we have to cut to the chase to the second half of the story. We have to move down to Sarah in verse 10. Then one of the three said, I will surely return to you in due season, and your wife Sarah shall have a son. 
and Sarah was listening at the tent entrance behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. It had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I have grown old and my husband is old, shall I be fruitful? Like Alice in Wonderland, who can't believe something impossible and laughs at the thought of trying, Sarah laughs. Sarah is an old woman. But if you don't know her story before this at all, you'll miss some of the deeper resonances of her laughter. Maybe some of the even bitterness behind it. You see, it's not just that Sarah is old. Sarah has been barren her entire life. She's been unable to bear biological children for Abraham, for her family. And I know that that's an experience that many of us in this room have walked through at times, right? Seasons or maybe a life of infertility. Lara remembers getting the call from a doctor after some medical testing we had that said it was highly unlikely that we would ever conceive naturally. Now that turned out not to be true for us, but it was a season that definitely resonated less with laughter and more with grief. But even a modern experience of infertility doesn't quite capture what Sarah is walking through. All right, Sarah lives in the ancient Near East, and this was not a time that was kind to women who were unable to conceive, right? Children were incredibly vital to the family structure, especially even the family farm, the family business, to caring for their parents when they were older. There was no pension plan. There was no social security. There were children. And a heavy social stigma was placed upon women who couldn't do that. So Sarah tries to remedy it. Right? You've, if you've read Genesis, going back to Genesis 16, she offers her servant Hagar to Abraham, and they have a child through Hagar. Sarah doesn't deal too well with that. She treats Hagar sinfully, poorly. She reveals herself, like many characters in the Bible, to be nothing if not infallible. Fallible. But Sarah, in the next chapter, God comes to Abraham in chapter 17, and he says, hey, it's actually going to go through Sarah, right? The child has to come through her. And Abraham falls on his face in laughter, right? Falls down laughing. He says, I'm 100. Sarah's 90. How can that be possible? All right, so Sarah's not the first person who laughed here. Abraham laughs. Sarah laughs. Because this is completely impossible, Right? It's not just a laughter with pain behind it. It's the laughter of unbelief. As our text says in verse 11, it had ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. Sarah is asked to believe that she could have a child, to use our modern terminology, when she's postmenopausal. Now, I was surprised to find out this last week that while it's incredibly rare, postmenopausal pregnancy does indeed happen. All right, there is a case uh, of a woman in India, the oldest recorded woman, 73 years old, to give birth via IVF and C-section. 73. 
Right? And then even without IVF, there have been cases, women 54, 51, 58. I was really surprised by this. But Sarah is not in her 50s. Sarah's not in her 70s. Sarah's in her 90s. Right? Sarah doesn't live in our modern age of technology, the digital age. She lives in the Middle Bronze Age. The idea of a 90-year-old woman who's been barren her whole life in the Middle Bronze Age giving birth is exactly as she responds to it. It's laughable. Right? It's, it's unbelievable. It's impossible. The white queen might be able to believe it, but Alice cannot. I have a friend who works professionally in comedy, and I actually sent him this text recently and asked about it and asked about the world of professional comedy, and he sent me a treasure trove of information, but the paragraph that really stuck out to me, he said, laughter must have something to do with reconciling problems in the world. It doesn't make sense that Michael Scott is the boss at Dunder Mifflin, and he's doing all this crazy stuff. The only way to square that is to laugh at it. Sarah laughs because the idea is so outlandish, but with the Lord, outlandish things happen all the time. Which raises the question for us this morning, what is it that makes something so outlandish as to be laughable? What is it that makes something so far-fetched as to elicit laughter from us? Well, it's a complicated question, but I think the very least we could say is that it has a lot to do with our context. It has a lot to do with our biography. Who are we? When are we born? Where do we live? Who are our friends? Right? For instance, think about the idea that the earth is flat. Right? We find that idea laughable. Unless you're a random person in a Facebook group or a few outliers, that idea is pretty laughable to us, right? We know the world is round. It's spherical. But if you're living a long, long time ago, that idea is probably not laughable. It's probably the most reasonable idea on offer, right? We don't really experience the spherical nature of the world as individuals. It seems flat to us. So you could see how that would be a reasonable and not a laughable idea. What about this? What about the idea that all human beings are created equal? We find that very believable. All of us in our society, very important, very reasonable. It's supposed to be a cornerstone of our society written in our founding documents. But would all cultures at all times and places believe that? Well, in fact, I've mentioned Tom Holland's book, Dominion, before, who tells the story of the Jesus revolution all the way up to the present day and the values that it has bestowed upon us. And he talks about this very idea of people being equal, of having an inherent dignity and worth simply by virtue of being humans. And he says that every human being possessed an equal dignity was not remotely self-evident as a truth a Roman would have laughed at it. That idea is really believable, reasonable, important to us, but 
ask a Roman, ask Friedrich Nietzsche, they might laugh you out of the Colosseum. All right, there are aspects of the Genesis story, there are aspects of the biblical story that may seem hard to believe, right? That do seem laughable. Sarah laughs. It's in the story. And yet there are also stories on offer today that we as Christians find quite outlandish, right? We find outlandish this idea that something could arise from nothing without God, right? We find the idea that being could emerge from non-being without the divine pretty outlandish, Right, or the fact that conscious life could emerge from non-conscious life without some kind of divine superintendence, as Peter Williams says, we find that pretty outlandish. Right, we've, it sounds to us like a miracle, but without God to fund the miracle. But God is present in Genesis 18. And God promises to Abraham and Sarah a miracle. And we usually think of miracles as a contradiction of nature, right? But if all of finite being really rests on the infinite ground of God, what if a miracle is really just some part of the natural world being more overtly influenced by its actual ground, God? Right? What if, if we could see all of it, if we could really see all of truth, maybe we would see what Augustine says, that miracles are not in contradiction to nature. They are only in contradiction with what we know of nature. Having a baby at 90 is in direct contradiction to everything that Sarah knows about nature, everything she knows about herself, everything she knows about the world. It's painfully contradictory, impossible. But in verse 13, we get God's response. The Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, shall I indeed bear a child now that I am old? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? At the set time, I will return to you in due season and Sarah shall have a son. But Sarah denied saying, I did not laugh for she was afraid He said, yes, you did laugh. Sarah laughs at the impossibility. And then God asks what I think is one of the most beautiful questions in Scripture. Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? Is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And then Sarah denies her laughter, and God doubles down. And this doubling down, he says, no, you did laugh. It's, it's often read sometimes as if God is angrily rebuking her. I guess that's possible here, but some Jewish and Christian readers have said, it's not at all clear that God's really angry about this, but he does insist on the truth of it. He does insist on registering this fact because Sarah's laughter is typical of the pattern of redemption. Right? Sarah's laughter is emblematic of the way God works in the world. He often moves from death to life. He often moves from barrenness to fruitfulness. Right? He often moves from the pitifully laughable to celebratory laughter. And that way goes through the laughter of Sarah. 
And that's exactly where the story goes in Genesis 21, verse one, the Lord dealt with Sarah as he had said, and the Lord did for Sarah as he had promised. Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time of which God had spoken to him. Abraham gave the name Isaac to his son whom Sarah bore him. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old as God had commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. Now Sarah said, God has brought laughter for me. Everyone who hears will laugh with me. And she said, who would ever have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have borne him a son in his old age? Everyone who hears will laugh with me. God moves us from the mocking, derisive, unbelievable laughter to celebratory laughter, to joy. And we laugh with Sarah. As we said earlier, what makes something laughable has a lot to do with context. Right, and this comes out in an essay written by a guy named W.H. Auden. And he compares classical Greek comedies to Shakespeare. And it's really fascinating because he says these classical Greek comedies, they're dependent upon a view of the world that divides people into two classes, right? So there are the virtuous great people and they're not supposed to be laughed at, right? It's not laughable, they're virtuous and great and heroic. But then there's the fools and the rascals and the slaves, that second class of people, and they're fit subjects for laughter, right? That's what the ancient Greek comedies, that's what you laugh at. You watch these fools and rascals and slaves get the drubbing that they deserve, and you laugh. But he says it's different in Shakespeare's comedies. In a society that is Christian, in Shakespeare's society, the comedy is not based on dividing humanity into two. It's based on the fact that we are all fallible, that we're all fallen, and that none of us is immune from comedic exposure, right? That all of us are sinful. And, and he says this beautiful quote, he says, in classical comedy, the characters are exposed and punished. When the curtain falls, the audience is laughing and those on stage are in tears. In Christian comedy, the characters are exposed and forgiven. When the curtain falls, the audience and the characters are laughing together. That's why Sarah says, everyone will laugh with me. Right? This is the beginning of the story that leads to the belief, the truth that we all are created equal, right? This is the beginning of that idea. A Roman would laugh at that. There's a class of society, they deserve the comedy, but we're not allowed to judge each other, right? We know that we're all sinful, and so we laugh together, the laughter of redemption, that begins with Sarah, and that story goes on and on through the Bible from birth after birth, and it depends on the births, right? Because God is blessing the whole world according to Abraham's seed. So Ben Myers said, if the, the Hebrew women ever stop bearing children, the promise is gone. The story's over. But it keeps going. 
And it goes all the way to the most unlikeliest, the most impossible, hardest to believe Luke chapter one births, where Mary, who's pregnant with Jesus, sings, my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my savior for he has looked with favor on the lowliness of his servant. Surely from now on all generations will call me blessed for the mighty one has done great things for me and holy is his name. In verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy according to the promise he made to our ancestors, to Abraham, and to his descendants forever. Mary's joy comes from the same line as Sarah's laughter. Mary's joy that leads to Jesus Christ, the Jesus who in Luke's gospel several chapters later is going to say, blessed are you who are hungry now for you will be filled. Blessed are you who weep now for you will laugh. In the first chapter of the original Alice in Wonderland, Alice famously falls down a rabbit hole She's chasing after this white rabbit and she falls way down the hole and she gets all the way down there and she's trying to find the rabbit and she's trying to get through this doorway that's too small and she thinks, well, even if I could get my head in, I don't know if my shoulders are fit and she wants to try and contort her body in a way that'll let her get through the doorway and she thinks maybe if I could start, it would work. If I could only begin. After which Lewis Carroll writes, For you see, so many out-of-the-way things had happened lately that Alice had begun to think the very few things indeed were really impossible. As one Bible scholar says, Sarah's laughter is faith's constant companion. And what we find, in other words, in Genesis this morning is that the gospel moves us from the barren laughter of unbelief to the incomprehensible laughter of faith. The gospel moves us from the barren, inert, frozen, fruitless posture of unbelief to a place where the world is pregnant with possibility. Possibilities for the kingdom of God. Incomprehensible faith. Sarah's laughter is still there, but it's transformed. It's transfigured, right? We don't understand how we could possibly believe, how it could possibly be true, but in the comedy of incomprehension, we find ourselves with the surprising gift of faith. We don't understand amidst all the sin and death and evidences to the contrary, amidst all the turmoil and violence and chaos, how it could be. But we believe that if God can go from Sarah to Mary to Jesus to the cross to the resurrection, then God can move us from death to life. God can move us from sinful to sanctified. God can move us from unbelief belief and so we laugh we laugh at the idea of an elderly childless couple in what is now Iraq beginning the central storyline of the universe we laugh and yet somehow we believe we laugh 
at the idea of a pregnant virgin Jewish girl. We laugh and yet somehow we believe. We laugh with the thought of a crucified body, failed Messiah that refuses to stay dead. And somehow we believe. Somehow we believe. We laugh with Sarah. We laugh with Mary. And we ask ourselves, are miracles a contradiction of nature or are they just a contradiction of nature as we understand it? We ask ourselves, is anything too wonderful for the Lord? And in faith we confess, not for the Lord of Sarah, not for the Lord of Mary, not for the Lord Jesus Christ who is Lord over your life, Lord over this church, and Lord of heaven and earth. Let's stand and praise the Lord of faith's laughter.